You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A FaceTime bug lets you listen to someone's phone before they've even picked up. Formbook malware's surge is abetted by a new hosting service. Compromised server market Xdetic has been taken down. Europol is looking for web stressor users. Huawei faces new U.S. criminal charges. Kim's ambitious economic plan may augur ambitious North Korean hacking. The EU foretells a surge in Iranian cyber attacks. And waiting for information operations around the Venezuelan crisis. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 29th, 2019. Do you use FaceTime and do you use an up to date version of iOS? Do you FaceTime with other iOS devices? Here's some news you can use one way or another. First, a way we recommend you not use the news. A FaceTime bug was disclosed late yesterday. 9to5Mac reported last night that you can call someone using FaceTime and start hearing audio from their phone before they even pick up. It's not exactly covert because the phone will still ring, sing, buzz, or sullenly vibrate. But if the person on the other end is inattentive, you'll be hearing their cries, shouts, whispers, imprecations, and so on before they've accepted or rejected the call. The bug works like this. First, you start a FaceTime video call with one of your iPhone contacts. While the phone's dialing, and it doesn't literally dial, but you get the drift, go ahead and swipe up from the bottom of the screen and tap Add Person. It's like a group chat, only it's not going to be an actual group, because the person you add is you, yourself, your own phone number. The group FaceTime call will include you and the microphone of the unwitting person, whether they've interacted with their phone or not. Your phone will show that the person you call joined the chat, but their device will simply continue ringing away on the lock screen. Of course, don't try this. It's rude, uncalled for, creepy, and be sure to tell any of your creepy friends, because of course you wouldn't consider doing that yourself. Well, tell those creepy friends, we say, who might be tempted along these lines to please restrain themselves. But here's the other way you can use this news, and this you should definitely do. Protect yourself from what would probably be a minor intrusion by locking down your phone. NSA's Rob Joyce helpfully tweeted some instructions anyone can use, although if you're a fancy bear, charming kitten, or the Lazarus group, take five, leave the room, and smoke them if you got them. Here's what Rob Joyce recommends. He says, Turn off FaceTime until Apple issues a patch for iOS and you install it. Claims of major privacy issue discovered. Go to Settings, scroll down to FaceTime, it's the green icon with camera, and switch off. See there? Twitter can be used for good. The problem seems to affect iOS devices running iOS 12.1 or later. Apple has made the group FaceTime server, where the bug is located, temporarily unavailable until Cupertino comes up with a permanent fix. 
which they've promised sometime later this week. Deep Instinct announced this morning that a new variant of information-stealing Formbook is circulating in the wild. Formbook is a familiar commodity in dark web markets. Its build is featuring both elaborate evasion cred and powerful credential harvesting capabilities, and it's offered at a fairly low price. Formbook has been known since its discovery was announced in late 2017 by Arbor Networks and FireEye for its use in spam campaigns designed to fish up credentials. Formbook has recently shown increased rates of usage. Deep Instinct says that its own prevention work has been largely in North American retail and hospitality sectors, but that they have reason to believe the attack wave isn't limited geographically. Jamil Jaffer is VP for Strategy and Partnerships at IronNet Cybersecurity. He runs a think tank at George Mason's Law School called the National Security Institute, and he's a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He recently briefed congressional staffers on Capitol Hill on nation-state threats, collective defense, and strategic deterrence in cyberspace. There's often this tendency to think in the United States that, well, you know, the government defends itself and private sector defends itself. And so uh, in cyberspace, we assume that every company in our economy, whether it's Walmart or Target um, or Marriott Corporation, they're going to defend themselves against all attackers, whether they are script keys in their basement all the way to nation-states. But of course, in no other context do we expect that. We don't expect Target or Walmart to have surface-to-air missiles on the roofs of their warehouses to defend against Russian bear bombers. Yet in hmm. cyberspace, we do, and that's an odd construct. And so if we're going to have that expectation of private industry, well, then industry's got to come together, uh, work with one another, because you can't expect a single company to defend against a committed nation state. They have to come together as an industry, come together across industries, and frankly, uh, come together with the government to really create a collective defense system where they're sharing information constantly creating almost a, a radar picture of the U.S. cyber environment and then figure out if and when the government has information, it can take its own action to both stop the activity but also deter that activity going forward. And that's the really hard part of this calculus because we're not used to thinking about a government industry working this tightly together. Uh, but given these new expectations, we almost have to do that and change our construct. Now, what about from a, from a global leadership point of view? What role should the United States take in setting norms for these sorts of things? No, that's a great question. I mean, look, there is really a divide when it comes to cyberspace about how to address uh, whether it's cyber warfare activities or the like. Um, sort of the, the Western nations uh, have one perspective. They say, look, there are nation state behaviors that we've always engaged in, surveillance and the like. We understand that every nation is going to do that. That's fine. And everyone will sort of the chips will fall where they may. But when it comes to destructive activity, we should think about how to how to how to work together to limit those things like we have done in the warfare space. But then you look at totalitarian states or, you know, somewhat totalitarian states like China and Russia. And you see there what they're looking to do with with sort of cybersecurity norms and the like is really to suppress internal dissent. Right. Rather than address these external activities. In fact, they're happy to engage in external activities. And so how you bridge that divide, I think, is a hard one. The U.S. has to lead that space, but it's going to be a tough, a tough place for us to get real consensus in the absence of a consensus on norms, though. We still do have to deter bad cyber activity. You know, a lot of people said, well, deterrence doesn't work in cyberspace. I don't believe that. I think we simply don't practice deterrence in cyberspace today. We don't talk about our capabilities. We don't talk about our red lines. And frankly, when bad things happen to us, we don't take action and respond in a way that will make people really understand the consequences of their actions and not take action in the future. So that's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that uh, in terms of, of defense or, or even offensive capabilities, there's a reticence to tip your hand 
to allow the other folks to know what you may have. And, and to me, this, this strikes me as being different than, you know, in the, in the kinetic world where if you're a member of the nuclear weapons club, well, everybody knows what your capabilities are. That's exactly right. And, you know, I mean, if you recall back in the back in the sort of 80s and 90s when we were really engaged in that sort of mano a mano fight with the Russians, right, the Cold War, uh, we made it very clear what our capabilities were, what our red lines were, and what if Russia did this to us or to our allies, we would do in response. Today in cyberspace, we don't talk about capabilities, as you just pointed out, right? We, we sort of keep them very close to the vest, in part because they came out of originally out of the intelligence community. And so we're used to in the intelligence community holding those secrets very tight. But the reality is that you can't deter someone if they don't know what your capabilities are. They don't know what you're willing to do. They don't know what line that if they crossed, you would respond. And by the way, you know, we have these sort of weird hiccups about cyberspace where we think oftentimes we think, well, if it happens to be in cyberspace, I've got to respond in cyberspace. No reason why that's true. Right. Uh, we also have these hiccups where we say, well, because cyberspace is built of zeros and ones and is, a, is built on binary systems. Well, then we have to have attribution that's perfect. We've never expected that in the real world. We didn't need to have, uh, you know, the audio of Muammar Gaddafi saying, I ordered the bombing of that Berlin discotheque to take direct kinetic action against him back in the 1980s. And yet today in cyberspace, we have this sort of almost a fetish about cyberspace that we have to say, well, attribution has to be perfect. The weaponry has to be in cyberspace. None of those things are true. And those all go to, in my mind at least, the sort of reasons why we don't actually have deterrence in cyberspace. It's not because it doesn't work. It's because we don't really practice it. That's Jamil Jaffer from IronNet Cybersecurity. Xdetic, the online marketplace that traded in hacked servers, has been taken down. The FBI announced that the illicit services site had been seized pursuant to a U.S. federal warrant. The Bureau estimates that the site facilitated some $68 million in fraud during the time it was in operation. The takedown was an international operation featuring substantial European support and cooperation. In the U.S., the FBI and IRS led the investigation, with assistance from U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement's Homeland Security Investigations and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. The Department of Justice's Office of International Affairs and the Criminal Division's Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section also helped. In Europe, the lead effort was a Belgian-Ukrainian operation by Belgium's Federal Prosecutor's Office and the Federal Computer Crime Unit and by the National Police and the Prosecutor General's Office of Ukraine. Europol rendered significant assistance as well. And Germany's Bundeskriminalamt helped seize Exdetic's infrastructure. We list the agencies to say bravo, and also for the pleasure of seeing so much effective cooperation. Exdetic's infrastructure had been located mostly in Belgium and Ukraine. Its proprietors are unlikely to go unscathed. Cyber Police Ukraine tweeted that they already have three suspects in custody. The Exdetic takedown is an example of supply-side action against the criminal economy, but users of illicit services shouldn't feel they've got a pass. Europol is pursuing users of booter services. The DDoS for hire service web stressor having been taken down, the authorities are now tackling the demand side of this criminal market and are very interested in getting to know the people who used web stressor services. Web stressor, like most other DDoS for hire outfits, covered its shame with the fig leaf of security testing. But few should be deceived by such a flimsy excuse. It didn't work in Eden, and it's not working now. The U.S. has filed more charges against Huawei, 13 counts, the New York Law Journal and many others report. They involve fraud and money laundering, with some of that fraud serving theft of intellectual property. 
China's government continues to object that Huawei didn't do nothing, nothing we tell you, and has urged Canada and the U.S. to drop the extradition proceedings that would send Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou to face the music in American court. Miss Meng, who also, fun fact, goes by Sabrina or Kathy, which is in itself an entirely innocent concession to dealing with tenured North American anglophones, well, she remains in Vancouver. Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau fired his ambassador to China over the weekend because the envoy made remarks to the effect that Miss Meng maybe should be released, that there might be sound political or even legal reasons for doing so. Trudeau was having none of it, and the wheels of Canadian justice will continue to grind. Finally, a few notes on international flashpoints that seem to have a good chance of sparking into hacking, or at least information campaigns. North Korean ruler Kim has announced ambitious financial goals for the year, and CyberScoop says many observers think these goals are likely to prompt a surge in DPRK hacking. North Korean hacking has long had a strong, perhaps dominant, strain of theft in it. Computer crime is an attractive way of redressing the pariah state's perennial, sanctions-induced financial straits. European officials warn that rising tensions between Iran, its regional rivals, and those global powers that disapprove of the Islamic Republic's policies are likely to prompt a spur of hacking by Iran's increasingly capable and resourceful cyber operators. Finally, since Russia has, for obscure reasons, having mainly to do with yanking the Yankees' chain in the Western Hemisphere, decided to nail its flag to the mast of Chavismo in Venezuela, one might expect various cyber campaigns in support of embattled and now officially illegitimate President Maduro. The U.S. has tightened sanctions on Venezuela to even more crippling levels, and the EU says it will recognize the head of the country's National Assembly as the legitimate acting president unless elections are promptly held. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. 
Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, and he's also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. An interesting article came by from Wired, and this is about uh, tweets that give away more location data than you think. This is an article from Issy Lepowski. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's going on here? uh, What's the location data that they're revealing here? Some time ago... Twitter thought it would be a great idea to uh, allow you to geotag your tweets okay. with uh, your location, like I'm in New York City or something like that. Okay. And you had to opt into it. Right. And their rationale for this was um, that it will provide you a better personalized experience. Right? Okay. This is what we always hear from these social media companies, a better personalized experience. Right. I will applaud Twitter here for making this something that people had to opt into. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, However, they weren't just storing the general location. They were actually storing the specific GPS coordinates of the person's device when they sent the tweet. Now, this information was not available to the user in a readily uh, visible format, nor available to Twitter users, uh, the standard Twitter users. But if you use the API, you can extract this information. So l- let me make sure I'm clear here. So I would say I'm in New York City. Right. But in doing so, Twitter behind the scenes would also log my precise GPS coordinates. Right. You're at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 26th okay. Street. Right. right. Okay. Uh, I don't know what's there, Dave. I yeah, my nothing. favorite adult theater. Right. Yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> just picking numbers out of random. Right. So there were some researchers who found out that this information was available. Mm. And uh, they're going to be publishing a paper in the Network and Distributed Systems Security Symposium coming up. Okay. And they have developed a tool that goes through the Twitter API, finds this information, and can identify your home uh, and your place of business and other things with, uh, like, 80% accuracy. Huh. So they're taking the information that that was logged behind the scenes, right? That you, so you opted in, but maybe did not know the precision with which you were opting in. Correct. So they go in and they sort of sift through this, and they figure, I, I suppose, based on repetition. So they correlate those bits of information. Maybe you tweeted, "I'm home," and then they look at the GPS <laughs> you tag and right or, figure, or, or rep, yeah, okay. If you're tweeting from this location at ten o'clock at night, and yep. you're regularly tweeting from that location ten o'clock at night, that's probably your house. Right. 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 So. Fortunately, if you go to the Twitter app you, and you have this turned on, you can turn it off right now by going into your uh, privacy and safety settings. And Twitter also provides you with an easy way to delete your location information from old tweets. Right. Now, so, Twitter also changed the way that they handle this. I think back in 2016, they made it a little more overt that you have to opt into this degree of, of tagging. Right. Cause, and that's the problem with it was that in 2009, when they started it, they didn't really tell you that you were opting into a really precise version of this tagging. Yeah. And I guess the other criticism is that 
when they changed that in 2016 to make it more of an overt opt-in, they also didn't make it any harder to get the historical data. Right. Yeah. Right. The, the, the historical data is still there right now for tweets that were stored between 2009 and 2016. Yeah. All right. So if this is something that concerns you, you can go into your Twitter settings and you can scrub that data, right? Right. You go to your settings, uh, uh, privacy and safety, and there's a big red button under privacy that says delete location information. Click that button. All right. All right. Good enough. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.